Well, before I start the sermon, I have a really exciting announcement, and that is you all won an award. This is it. Oops, it's this way. It's like, it's clear. Okay. You all won an award. Congratulations. You are the most valuable business partner of, uh, as of the North, uh, the, the board members of the neighbors of Marshall Terrace, the Neighborhood Association, the Concerned Citizens of Marshall Terrace. That's the name of their, this is where the Mill City Commons is. And we have won the most valuable business partner award. Yeah. So all the more reason to, um, I, one thing I didn't add earlier, we also need to pay for our sub pump because we're pumping like a river into the street. And I don't think that they were, that, that might have almost lost us the award. So that's one of the other things we're trying to raise money for. So help us out. Um, but I was told um, about this award that I needed to come to the, the Marshall Terrace. And I, I live in Marshall Terrace. So I said I would accept the award on your behalf. And I was told that if to accept the award, I must be wearing an ugly Christmas sweater. And so here's a picture of me and Brent. You see that? And you can't really see my ugly Christmas sweater. It's not actually mine. Um, I don't own any Christmas sweaters, ugly or otherwise, but my mom does. And so every time I'm required to wear one, which is more than you'd think, I call my mom and I, I just ask her for her normal sweatshirts because I'm not trying to offend her or anything. And I wasn't suggesting anything. I just, I wore it and um, they had a contest. So I, I accepted our award. Um, I sat down and then there was a contest for uh, most festive shirt, sweater, and, and most ugly. And so they put their hand over everybody's head, clap for festive, clap for ugly. And you're, I mean, like, it's okay, because I got what they were trying to do, but no, I've never had somebody put their hand over my head and say, clap for ugly. <laughs> and uh, I was in the top three, but um, Brent actually won with his little gnome, take me gnome tonight. So just saying, he won. I was yelling, vote for Brent the whole time, <laughs> because I didn't want to tell my mom that her Christmas sweater won most ugly. So we made it through. Uh, this week is the third Sunday of Advent, as you heard Bethany and Isaac read earlier. And so the, the theme of today, the pink candle, is joy. The joy of, of the Advent season. And I know that some of you, knowing your stories, which I am privileged to hear many of them, um, you would say that this last year is one where you, you experienced a lot of joy. There were some joyous things that happened. You look back over the year, perhaps, and you can notice moments where you felt like you saw God do some things that really caused you to feel and experience joy. And one of the things we're committed to doing as a part of this community is to celebrate with people who are celebrating. And so we celebrate with you if joy is what you've experienced. But I would say for many, if not most, just based on the way that life goes, when you look back on this last year, joy is probably not the first thing that you think of. Um, sometimes people would say struggle or pain or even mundane or apathy or pretty much anything but joy is what I typically hear is the main thing you think about when you look back over the, the last year as you're moving into the new year. And so I think for some people, the concept of joy in the Christmas season can feel a little bit trite. Or um, I even heard some people say it feels a little bit patronizing as though uh, it's kind of a sense that you're minimizing the darkness or the pain or the struggle that people might have experienced over a year like this. And, and you're just not feeling the whole most wonderful time of the year mantra that kind of tends to permeate the airwaves as you listen to the radio. And I, I've heard that many of you would say that every Christmas, there's this sense of almost this obligation, I'm supposed to feel joyful and I don't always feel that way. And, and you, you would say, and I would, I would actually agree with this, that just because we've moved into the Christmas season or Advent, 
it doesn't automatically mean that joy comes with it. I think that's the reality for most of us. And uh, I've heard many people say things like, you know, joy for me at the Christmas season is just trying to put on a happy face for the kids because they're excited. Or joy for us means that we need to make sure that we keep things light and fluffy in the conversation with the in-laws this season because things are tense. I've heard some of you talk about how, you know, joy for you is just trying not to dwell on the fact that you feel really lonely this season and you feel alone and you wonder why there's not people either with you in proximity or in your life in certain ways. I think that joy is something that sometimes we have a temptation to force in a season like this. I think it's something that we can tend to force ourselves into rather than something that truly comes from the season. Joy can be something we kind of force ourselves into rather something that just truly comes from the Advent season and what it represents. And I think if joy feels forced to you, then at some level there's a misunderstanding of what that means in regards to the Christmas story. What does joy mean in regards to the Christmas story? I think that the Christmas story is one that if understood correctly, then joy is something pretty different than what we typically sing about on the radio. If the Christmas story is understood accurately, then it's not necessarily one that's kind of as, um, I would say, kind of sweet, a cute, cute, sweet little story. That's one. Some of you were telling me, I was talking to Brian, he said, oh, we got this cute little book for our son, and it talks about how sweet the Christmas story is and how nice it is. And I think there's some parts of it that are sweet and nice. But for the most part, I think what we've done with the Christmas story is similar to what we've done with the modern-day fairy tale. I bet some of you have, have known about this concept. You know, the fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast and Pinocchio and the, the Frog Prince and these different things. These stories were written hundreds of years ago, but since that time, it's that, that they've almost become kind of sterilized and kind of dolled up and become really cutesy. And we all know that Disney is mostly responsible for this. And the fairy tales have become very tame and very cute and cartoons, which works well for us if we have small children. But the original stories weren't that way, were they? I bet there's some of you who are fans of some of the TV shows that have come out recently, like Once Upon a Time and uh, Grimm, where they're going back to the original ways that those stories were told. And it is not sterilized and dolled up and cutesy, is it? Do some of you know what I'm talking about? Like, for instance, in Cinderella, the evil stepsisters or whatever they're called, they cut off their toes in order to fit them into the glass slipper so that they can get the prince. I didn't know that. That's not in the, that's not in the Disney version. Right? I mean, or for instance, in Snow White, the, the earliest stories are about the evil queen sending the huntsmen out to, to find Snow White and to cut her open, take out her liver and her lungs so that the queen can eat them. Eat them, Isaac. Like, I just didn't see cannibalism coming in that one. Like, that's just not where my brain was going because I'm used to the more sterilized and nice and cutesy version of the stories. We've sanitized and dolled up the fairy tales, and Disney has made a lot of money on that. And I think that we've sterilized and dolled up the Christmas story, and Hallmark and Hollywood have made a lot of money off that. And it's to our detriment, because when we sterilize the story, when we, when we take away some of the deeper things that happened, we fail to really think about what really went on. We fail to think about the reality of the story that, for instance, the only reason that Mary and Joseph have to travel while that pregnant is because of these authoritarian politicians who want to count everybody so they can get more money. And they're making people do these, tre these treks across three nights, three days, and they can't even afford to do that. And people are having to do it because they're so afraid of the government. 
I think then we fail to see the absolute audacity of a nine-month pregnant woman having to ride a donkey. Come on, that's nuts, right? That's like a horror film, some people would say. You don't want to ride a donkey ever, much less when you're pregnant, much less when you're almost ready to give birth. I heard somebody say once that that's the, that one statement is why they don't believe in the Bible, because there's no way it's true that a pregnant woman rode a donkey at nine months. And I don't know, I don't think that necessarily means that we can't understand the whole Bible. I'm just saying, the story is not that cute, okay? We pictured uh, Mary in blue, right? She's always in blue, and, and it's clean, and she's holding this little angelic child. Some of you have given birth. Is it like that? I don't think it is. That's not what I've heard. It's different than that. And I think then one of the biggest examples of the way we've kind of just tried to, to, to downplay some of the tragic parts of this story is the fact that King Herod has hundreds of little boys to and under murdered. And I totally see why in the Christmas season we want to skip over some of these realities because it's not comfortable. It doesn't speak of some of the things that the candles represent of love and hope and joy. But I think that the fact that this is no fairy tale is so core to our understanding of what love and hope and joy really mean in a season like this. This is no fairy tale, right? I mean, maybe, at least not the Disney version, maybe a little bit like the Brothers Grimm version of the tale. But even from the very beginning, some of you know this, that Mary was probably only between 12 and 14 years old when she finds out that she's been miraculously conceiving this child, and that's when most women would be betrothed, so almost for certain she was that young. And uh, she is pledged to marry this guy who probably her family arranged for her. Who knows if she's even met Joseph at this point? He's probably 16, maybe. And so here we have this young girl being told that she is going to be pregnant before she's married to another teenager, right? And the consequences of this reality in her time are typically absolutely horrible. At best, the consequences are that you would be ostracized from your community. At worst, you'd be stoned to death. This is the, her reality in this. Here is the thing. No fairy tale begins with teenage pregnancy, right? This is not a fairy tale. Yet here in the midst of this story that's pretty much laced with tragedy, we also find this common thread, I'll call it, of joy. We see throughout this dark tale a thread of joy, of rejoicing, a thread of light piercing the darkness of this tale. And I would say that in the midst of tragic and troubled times, we see the God of the universe condescending to become a human and to come and be this little powerless baby. So I want to look right at the beginning of the story in Luke 1, and that's what I want to focus on today. Mary, in the beginning of Luke 1, is told that she's going to have a child. And uh, the first thing it says in the NIV version, which is what I'm going to read today, it says that she was greatly troubled. And I would say that maybe a more accurate statement would be she was terrified. She was scared out of her mind. She was horrified because of the reality of what this could mean for her in her life. First of all, she's seen an angel, which is terrifying. Every time you read in the Bible, every time you see an angel, it's terrifying. I don't know if you've ever seen one. Sounds like it's terrifying. The second thing is she's told that she's going to be with child, which is, like I said, a disaster for her in this current time in her life and in the world. But Mary's response is to say yes. And she says, I will do what God asks. And she runs to her relative Elizabeth's house. And since the angel told, the angel had told her that Elizabeth was also pregnant, right, in the story. And so she runs to Elizabeth's house. It turns out that a, a pregnant woman can be really helpful to an unexpectedly pregnant woman. 
So Mary goes to be with Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And when she gets there, um, they have this interchange, and then Mary then gives this prayer or this song. It's come to be known as Mary's song. Maybe you've heard of it before. And I want to read that song that Mary expresses in Luke 1. Starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And then it says that Mary stayed for three months there with Elizabeth. Isn't that beautiful and poetic and unlike anything you've ever heard any 13-year-old girl ever say? No offense, guys, but it just doesn't sound like a 13-year-old to me. And I don't know if we, like, lost some of the context along the way. I think perhaps she's echoing back some scriptures she'd heard from the Torah. But I, I want to suggest a, a little bit different version of this, okay, if you'll let me. Um, I want you to imagine this 13-year-old girl. Uh, obviously, she's scared, but she's also proven herself to be a pretty resilient girl at this point. And my hunch is that it would sound a little bit different. I think it would sound a little bit more like this. I'm bursting with joy that God is going to make a way for us to be saved. This news that God has given is making my soul feel like it's going to explode because it's what everybody had always said would happen someday. And I can't believe that God looked at me and thought that I should be the person to do this. I must be like the most fortunate girl ever. I mean, no one's going to forget this. Eventually, people are, people are going to have to find out about it. And once they hear about this, they are never going to forget it. God is so huge and holy, and he's not like us humans at all. He has so much grace and mercy, and it's so overwhelming for me to even think about it. He's so strong and mighty and powerful. He could beat any enemy, no matter how big. He can rescue anyone, no matter how much trouble they might be in. God can give us what we need and provide for those who don't have enough. This thing he's going to do through me, this is, this is exactly what he promised. All those stories that I heard growing up ever since I was a little kid about Abraham all the way up until now, God's doing exactly what he promised he would do. In this NIV version, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's the beginning. In my little paraphrase, I'm bursting with joy that God is going to make a way for us to be saved. Are we willing to see that in this story, Mary is stating that she is rejoicing, that she is bursting with joy. And she's doing that in the midst of extreme, even dangerous, very difficult circumstances. At this point, Mary hasn't even told Joseph the news. Most likely, she wouldn't be the one telling Joseph the news. This girl had no power in this situation at all. She was just a slightly above property at this point. And here she is recounting who God is, which is key if she's going to be able to rejoice, isn't it? She's reminding herself, who is this God who is doing this thing? Because if I'm going to rejoice in the midst of something so terrifying, I must remind myself of who I serve. 
nearly every place we see the theme of joy in the Christmas story and throughout the Bible, here's the thing I want you to notice. It's never about the circumstances of the people. It's never about the circumstances the people find themselves in. It's always about God. It's about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. The people in this tragic and intense Christmas story, as opposed to the cute, quaint version, are in no way oblivious to the fact that darkness completely surrounds them. They are oppressed people. These are people who live in constant fear of those who want to control them and who want to take everything that they can get from them. This is their reality. And so joy is not about their circumstances at all. It's about God. It's about what God has done. It's about what God is doing. It's about what God will do. The word rejoice in Greek is kairo. And it means really literally to delight in God's grace, to rejoice, to experience God's grace or favor, to be conscious or glad for God's grace. Do you see how it's about God? and not about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Joy isn't happiness. Joy isn't about happy circumstances or good circumstances. Joy is about everything but us. It's not about us, it's about God. Joy is not about happiness, it's about God. Mary's trying to grasp what she's heard. She's fearing for her very life and her whole future, and she rejoices, it says. The shepherds are filled with great joy, it says. And why are they filled with great joy? Because they're in distress. They're people who never know if they're going to have what they need, who are constantly under the sense that people are going to come after them and what they have. They are crying out for a Savior that they've been waiting for for a long time. So if they hear the news from these angels, then they rejoice because as they stand there in the darkness of this field, a light has come. And this theme of joy carries throughout the New Testament if you follow it. And it's never dictated by the, the circumstances of the followers of God. It's always about what God is doing, and it's given to the people. God gives the joy to the people in the story. In the book of Acts, we hear that the early church is filled with joy as they encounter the Holy Spirit. But as they're experiencing that joy, these are people who are being significantly persecuted, even killed. Later on, Paul is writing to the, to, to the church in Philippi. I bet many of you have heard these words. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Do you remember that passage? Paul is writing that from prison again. And all laced throughout that letter to the church in Philippi and the book of Philippians is this sense of, of uh, death just permeating the letter because Paul is anticipating that he doesn't have much time. And he's writing this letter to this church and to the churches that it might be circulated to. And he's not, it's, those letters are not being read to a nice auditorium like this through some nice speakers to some people. Picture instead people crammed in houses, sweaty and hot, just trying to get every single word that they can hear from the person who's brought that letter to read it. And as they hear that letter written, they're rejoicing in what they hear and that God is doing something among them, yet they're wondering every moment if Roman soldiers are going to bust in and end the whole thing and that some of them they'll never see again. This was the reality in which joy is given to people. And yet Paul continues to say rejoice. God will give you joy. So we see as the story goes on, this thread of joy rejoicing, but it's making its way through darkness. It's making its way through darkness. 
And as I look at our lives and my life today, I look around and I say, you know, this part of God's big story that we're in, we always talk about with our kids that we're a part of the big God story. And when we look at our little part of the big God story, in my view, I see a lot of darkness. I see a lot of darkness with a thread of light and joy in the midst of it. I see joy being one of the things that pierces the darkness of the story where we find ourselves in. And so then when you read the words from the prophet Isaiah, 800 years before the most powerful God of the universe became a powerless little baby, and he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Who increases the joy? God does. Who is the light that pierces the darkness? God is. Most of us, I think, if we're being honest, we can't resonate with Mary's story exactly, right? It's a pretty outrageous story. So we're not going to try to say, hey, we're, we know just what she feels like, because we don't. But I know I personally can resonate with a story that feels like darkness often permeates everything. Yet in the midst of that darkness, there's these moments where I'm reminded of who God is or I remember something that God's done, or I see God doing something around me, or I remember the promises that God has for the hope of the future. And it's like inside of me, there's this sense of something that just feels like it's gonna burst deep inside, not on the surface where happiness is, that's way up on the surface for me, but deep inside of me that regardless of circumstances, there's just this sense of something that my soul feels like it's going to explode, and that I think is joy. And it doesn't come all the time. And it doesn't necessarily come in with the Christmas carols on the radio. When I experience that joy, personally, it's rarely about my circumstances having changed. It comes from a sense that I'm not alone, that God is truly Emmanuel, or with us God. And I don't think we see Mary forcing the joy. At least that's not how I read it. I don't think this story expresses a trite and commercialized joy. What do we see Mary do? She doesn't make a list of what's going well for her and what isn't, and then uh, try to focus on the things that are good, right? Because this isn't going to get her anywhere, as we've seen. She is in a spot where the stakes are pretty high. We don't see her trying to pretend like things are fine when they're not. It says she basically hid at her cousin's, Elizabeth's house, for three months. She didn't go back to life as usual, pretending like nothing terrifying has happened, because it had. We don't see a nice little story tied up in a little bow put under the Christmas tree, do we? Mary's story is not like that. Mary's story continues to be laced with tragedy. We, we find out through scripture that most likely she's widowed by the time Jesus is an adult. And she watches her son tortured, beaten, killed, only to come back to life and have him for just a short time and then never see him again. What do we see Mary do? In just this prayer, in just this song, we see her do just a few things. First, we see that she turns towards God. When she could have turned away, she turns towards God. She declares who God is in the midst of her fear. She remembers what it is that God has done. And then she holds on to hope that God always keeps his promises. You see that just in that short poem. And I think we often have a similar struggle in some ways, and just this sense 
that sometimes we see God doing something around us, but we also have darkness surrounding us. I know some of your stories. I'm privileged to hear a lot of them. Some of you have personal darkness in your life. The pain, the struggle, the loneliness, the loss of this last year. Some of you would say it's almost been too much for you to bear. Some of you are experiencing what I would maybe call societal darkness. Some of the the populations that you're called to serve and to spend time amongst is heartbreaking to you on a daily basis. Some of you, God has begun to break your heart for the things that breaks God's heart. And the weight of that, it cuts you to the core. Some of you feel the reality of spiritual darkness. This spiritual battle that's happening all around us, it manifests itself sometimes in these ways that make you just feel weighed down and it can feel super overwhelming. So this Christmas, I want to encourage you, don't force the joy. Don't try to force it. But also don't wallow in darkness as though the light has not come. Instead, I think that following this example that we see in Mary's song as she moves towards God, can we turn towards God? Can we declare who God is? Can we remember what God has done in the past? And can we hold on to hope that God keeps his promises for the future? And then maybe, can we ask God to give us joy in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of the darkness? We can't force it, but it's something that God can give us. It might not look like happiness, it's going to look like something deeper. When you turn towards God, you're going to see that God hasn't changed. Even though everything around us seems like it's changing all the time, when you turn towards God, you see that God is who God says he is, no matter how dark the days are, no matter how long and dark the nights might be. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Um, we, We put this out on social media this week, but I wanted to let you all know that on Wednesday, December 21st, uh, in the, the calendar of life, it's the longest night of the winter, right? So it's the, the deepest darkness of the night. And we're going to partner with Grace Lutheran and Intertwine Church to have what they're calling a longest night service. It's on Wednesday the 21st at 7 p.m. at, Grace, Grace, at the Grace Center. And it's just going to be a time where people can come together and express maybe some of the things that have been on their heart. In the midst of all the holiday celebrations, there's maybe some mourning or some grief or some lamenting that still needs to be done. And this is an invitation for anybody to come and to express that. And I'd really encourage you to join in if that's something that you need that space for this year. Even try to change your schedule if you need to. On the 21st, uh, the longest night service at the Grace Center, and we'll have it on our website. So as we close, here's the thing that I want to say about darkness. Darkness is what makes the light so beautiful, right? Sometimes joy is like just a small little warm light of a candle. It doesn't make the darkness go away. But it's small, but everything that it touches, it changes it in some ways. Darkness is the thing that makes it so that the deepest night darkness is why the Christmas tree lights are so beautiful. Or the the lights on your neighbor's house make you smile and make kids just light up with awe. It's the deep darkness that makes joy so real. It's the light of joy that penetrates the darkness, that breaks into the darkness, that makes it so profound. 
And so my prayer for you this Christmas is not that you would forget the things that happened this year that broke your heart, but that God would give you joy, not surface level happiness that's kind of trite and cute, but that God would give you a deep and profound joy because you turn towards him and you see a God who loves you, who's with you, who hasn't left you, who knows you, and who wants to show you in your life the thread of light and joy throughout the darkness. To continue our service today, we're gonna go into a time of communion. And if you've been with us for communion, you know it's gluten-free so everybody can participate. You don't have to be a member here at Mill City to participate in communion. Uh, We take the bread and we dip it into the cup and uh, everyone's welcome. And this is symbolizing the powerful reality of what it meant that God came, became a human, walked this earth, lived this life of ministry, was killed in a horrible death, but came back to life, conquered death, so that we're all invited into a future hope and into a reality now where we see God's kingdom breaking in as joy piercing the darkness. And as we begin communion, we're going to sing one of my favorite Christmas carols and maybe one of yours, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I think this song is so perfect. It so, so very well captures the tension of what joy in the midst of the darkness really is. Because as you sing this song, you're singing about Emmanuel, a God who is with us, yet there's all this longing, isn't there? Come, Emmanuel, come. And then there's this refrain where you sing rejoice, rejoice, but in such a deep minor tone, right? And and as you sing rejoice, it echoes into this language of gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows. Yet, we will rejoice, rejoice. But come to us, please, Emmanuel. Let's sing. 